Swami Sridhar Maharaj did not write a lot. In fact, most of his writing is in Sanskrit, uh, specific prayers, which is very nice. Uh, I believe some in Bengali also. And he also wrote a little bit in his commentary on Bhagavad Gita. It's not like Bhaktivedanta Swami's commentary. He only wrote, he only purported the most important verses of Bhagavad Gita. As far as writing, he didn't engage in writing per se, but he would sit and talk for hours when people would gather around and listen. So his disciples recorded his talks and cataloged them according to subject and produced a series of books, a few series of books from that. So that's what is available. Uh, and it's basically just transcriptions of what he said, and then they've been very nicely presented in book form. Mm -hmm. Is uh, he still alive today? No. Uh, oh, when he's did he pass? Uh, about, uh, I think, the late 80s. Mm -hmm. About a decade after Prabhupada. Yeah. He was Prabhupada's contemporary. They were God brothers, and very close. In fact, when Prabhupada uh, departed, he told his disciples, if you have any philosophical questions, Sridhar will be able to answer and help you in that regard. So you can take direction from him. And it's a long history, sordid history in that regard, which we don't want to enter to, into here. But uh, there's something very positive be, to be gained from also his explanation of things. And those God brothers of mine who took advantage of those, of him when he was present in India and heard attentively, in my estimation, got an extremely deep philosophical understanding, helped them more deeply understand their own spiritual master, Bhaktivedanta. Bhaktivedanta Swami was, was only preaching actively for 12 years, and most of his disciples uh, didn't join until the early to mid-70s, the majority of his disciples. So, And then he left in 77, and we were all young men. Majority of his disciples were still in their 20s. They were young and experienced Westerners who had, n had no background traditional tradition in culture of Krishna consciousness based on Bhagavad Gita and Srimad Bhagavatam. Most of our culture of spiritual life was on the Bible. And that was not very focused. So many different versions, so many different churches, so many different opinions. This one, that one, and I mean, I don't know how many Christian churches are there. I don't think we could count them on two hands. There's a lot. Two hands, two feet, maybe a room of hands and feet, maybe a okay. well, coliseum, the, huh? Just look in the yellow pages. Mm. So we were young and we didn't have a lot of experience, a lot of experience in the traditional, in the tradition. But we did have Prabhupada's good guidance during the time he was with us, and that was extremely uh, beneficial to us. And he left us with more literature than one could truly acquaint themselves with in a lifetime. As you grow in your spiritual life, as you advance, then different things are going to come up. 
and we need good guidance along the way. Prabhupada acted as both our Shiksha and our Diksha Guru. He both gave us directions in advancing in spiritual life, and he gave us, he initiated us into the process of Krishna consciousness, both through Nama and Mantra. Is there still any unpublished literature out there yet? Of Prabhupada's? No. Everything is... I'm sure every... There are still a few recorded lectures that probably have not made it and may never make it to the archives. Okay, and the archives is actually right up in Sandy Ridge, Prabhupada Village. In fact, just recently another set of tapes, supposedly new tapes, uh, were introduced by somebody. But Prabhupada, when he traveled had a secretary with him at all times. And one of the duties of his secretary was to record all of the lectures, all of the room conversations, and all of his morning walks. That's how we have like collected lectures on Bhagavad Gita, collected lectures on Srimad Bhagavatam. So you can read transcripts of all those lectures and the collected teachings, all the other ones. Then you have the conversations books, which I don't even have here, but that's a whole other set of all of Prabhupada's conversations. Then there's sets of books made from the conversations of Prabhupada called the Sikhsamrita, which are topographically compiled. What did Prabhupada say about world leaders? What did Prabhupada say about Varnashram? What did Prabhupada say? What did Prabhupada say? What did Prabhupada say? So as far as uh, there's just a wealth of knowledge so there. They're not like sitting in somebody's attic still yet to be discovered. These tapes. There may be. You never know that there may be some devotee that's ending the, uh, that recorded something that wasn't recorded by the secretary. You know, in the beginning it wasn't done systematically. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there's always a possibility that new things will surface. That's the nature of an archives. It's always accumulating things. It's interesting you ask that because that's exactly what we started when we started to read tonight that's the first thing that came up wasn't it that we're ill-equipped that we're ill-equipped to make a judgment as to a proper preceptor and someone who's simply a cheater because our intelligence is covered over we would have a very difficult time making a discrimination because we don't have the necessary tools to discriminate. Just like, let's say that you're in an automobile accident. The trauma of it is so difficult that when you're wheeled into the hospital and you're in trauma, you're not in a position to judge who's a qualified and unqualified doctor. Are you? You're like, whatever, <laughs> help me, I'm bleeding here, sew me up. Put me back together. And you take whatever help you can find here or there. But it's not actually by chance. There is divine. The the hand of the divine is within everything. So as uh, Sridhar pointed out when we started reading this evening, that even though we're ill-equipped, the Lord within the heart, he assists if there's some sincerity there. 
And in regards to the process of pure devotional service, which is that spiritual practice which is devoid of some material motivation. And that's really the distinction of Bhagavad Gita and Srimad Bhagavatam. In fact, the very second verse of Srimad Bhagavatam speaks to the fact that it's not for those who are, have a cheating mentality. It won't be of any benefit to them. So, to directly answer your question, I have no idea what mercy took me to the feet of Bhaktivedanta Swami. It's called causeless. There's no, it's nothing, a haituki, there was nothing I did on my part. It's just somehow or other, by some good fortune or some prior piety, and that piety being especially in relationship to to Krishna or Krishna's devotees coming forward from a prior life. It's called Akshnatu Sukriti. We do something we don't even know that we're dealing with a true spiritual person. But you may do something very simple. Give some. You may be in the business of giving charity. And you're a wealthy person. You give charity indiscriminately. But somehow or other, maybe by your good fortune, you give charity to Krishna's devotee. And there's no one more dear to Krishna than his devotees. So when somebody has pure love for the Lord, which is not motivated by some uh, material uh, business arrangement, that they're actually, they've reached the level of purity, they become very, very dear to the Lord. So we may give some charity unbeknownst to ourselves to, to one of those extraordinary people or uh, we may hear uh, the devotees chanting or hear Bhagavad Gita or Srimad Bhagavatam from the lips of a pure devotee not recognizing as you say not recognizing his true qualification because we don't have the qualification to be cognizant of proper recognition the Lord works in mysterious ways the, the way of spiritual life is sometimes crooked but if there's any, the whole material creation culminates in that end, that this whole environment is, is here to, one, satisfy us rebellious souls that want to enjoy independent of God, who think we can be God, or, and to gradually rectify that misconception. So those, those objectives are there in material existence. We're going to read a little bit of that in Bhagavad Gita tonight as to that. Does that answer your question? Nothing of my, my doing, that's for certain. I can tell you that. Causeless. Any other questions? Nevam parampara praptam imam rajarsiyo vidu sakale neha mahata yoganasta parantapa the supreme science was thus received through the chain of disciplic succession, and the saintly kings understood it in that way. But in the course of time, the succession was broken, and therefore the science as it is appears to be lost. I was born in the darkness of ignorance. But my spiritual master has opened my eyes with the torchlight of knowledge. I offer my most respectful obeisances unto him.
So in this fourth chapter of Bhagavad Gita, we're going to receive a little bit of history lesson from Lord Krishna as to the nature of and the method of the transmission of spiritual knowledge to mankind. So the chapter begins, the first verses, the personality of Godhead, Lord Sri Krishna said, I instructed this imperishable science of yoga to the sun god Vivishwan, and Vivishwan instructed it to Manu, the father of mankind, and Manu in turn instructed it to Isvaku. So the first and most important thing to understand when we come in contact with Transcendental literatures like the Vedas, like Bhagavad Gita, Srimad Bhagavatam, both the Shruti and the Smriti. Shruti are the codes of religion which are actually considered to be the breath of the Supreme Lord. Apurushaya is an important term in this regard. It means that it is descending knowledge, transcendental. It has no source from this plane, it's coming down from the Supreme Lord, and it's pure knowledge. But there's a problem, isn't there? Even when there's pure knowledge, we tend to take that knowledge and utilize it to our own purpose. Instead of receiving the knowledge submissively, and we'll come to that later in this chapter, how transcendental knowledge needs to be received. So let's look at the example again. As I said, in our culture, our background is not of the Vedic culture and of uh, the various practices of Dharma as put forth in the Vedas. In India, such a culture is there, but our culture is different. But still, the purpose is of the great saints and sages are consistent throughout time. They do not change. So this beginning of the fourth chapter is certainly applicable to our understanding of Christianity, is it not? If we accept Lord Jesus Christ as, either we accept him as God incarnate, or we accept him as the son of God, or we have the spirit, spiritual insight to understand what exactly Lord Jesus was saying when he said, I'm God, there's no difference, you can accept me as such. And then he also says, I'm the son of God, and one would logically say, well, how can you be both God and the son of God? The proper spiritual understanding is Two things equal to the same thing or equal to each other. So the knowledge coming directly from God and the knowledge that Lord Jesus gave us in his capacity as the son of God or the savior of mankind is the same knowledge. So they're equal to each other. So whether we accept Jesus as the Lord incarnate or we accept Jesus as technically, there's a technical term here, that we don't have in our culture called Saktavish Avatar. Saktavish Avatar means someone can come down from the spiritual realm, but they're not actually God, but they're just as pure as God. 
So that's called Saktavishavatar. A descendant descending from the spiritual realm to help humanity. So whether it be Jesus or Mohammed or so many Allah, Buddha, I mean so many different manifestations of the Lord are there, both of him personally coming and sometimes he'll come and he only displays some of his some of his opulence. Sometimes he'll completely he'll appear in such a mysterious way that he doesn't even display his opulences and we have a hard time recognizing him as God. All this different detailed knowledge is there when it comes to to an understanding of the supreme personality of Godhead. Could that be like a miracle? Sometimes when you don't have an intelligent student, mm -hmm. you have to do something outrageous to really get them to pay attention. Now, I noticed this when I was going to high school. I always had these science teachers, and you'd be in the lab. I had one particularly in... in uh, in high school, that was unique. That you know, every all the kids are there, and you know, you're young kids, and you're going to high school, and he's like trying to wake you up to what's going. I'm trying to teach you science here. He gives his lecture, and everybody's there falling asleep, except, you know. But then when he goes over to the lab part and he starts blowing things up, everybody goes, "Oh, oh, wow! What, how'd you do that? Oh, you just mixed this and this, and all of a sudden." He'll do something spectacular to catch your attention. Sometimes when we're not paying attention, yes. The great saints or the sons of God or whatever nomenclature we want to use will, will do something to rattle our cage. Something out of the ordinary we're not used to. Walking on water, taking a loaf of bread and feeding hundreds of people. Few fish, hundreds of people, taking one bag of wine and making, and everybody has plenty of wine. I mean, come on, that's miracles. Well, not really. Mystic yogis can make their own planets. You yourself have the capacity, if you were to really learn the science of yoga, to attain all the mystic cities. And these mystic yogis are doing things that we would consider to be miracles. And sometimes a yogi will have just a little mystic power and he'll use that to, to uh, take advantage of the dumb public. He'll create some little gold from, you know, there was one yogi, that was, he was known for that. He would create a little gold and everybody oh, you're God. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Making a little gold with yogic mystic powers does not make you God. I won't go into some of the other things, the that are done in the name of religion, putting on on hands and the you know all this stuff happens, but it's just it's just tricks, parlor tricks. But is it real spirituality? That you have to have knowledge to discriminate. But back to my point, if we look at just Christianity and we look at Lord Jesus. And we look at a 2,000 year period of mankind, which is not a lot of time. 2,000 years is in the whole history of the universe, of creation. How, you know, we look at it as like, wow, we're at 2011. 2,000 years ago, Jesus left us. 
2,000 years, that's forever. Yeah, and look at what you did to his teachings in those 2,000 years. Right? So the period of time Krishna is talking about here, and if, you read the, if you've read, like we're supposed to read before we come to class so we have some background, so if we read the purport to the first first, there's some history there in time and chronology, isn't there? The time of Svaku, that this particular god, not the Lord, we're talking about a chief administrator of the universe. Krishna is saying, I instructed this sun god, and Vivaswan instructed it to Manu, the father of mankind. And Manu in time instructed to Isvaku. So Vivaswan means sun god. But these are only positions. This is a position. When we say president, we refer to the chief executive head of the United States of America. One year it's Nixon, one year it's Kennedy, one year it's Eisenhower. I'm going back in time, let's go forward. Then, you know, <laughs> we've got Bushes and we have Obamas. But when we say president, it refers to a position. So similarly, sun god means a position. If we read the purport, Prabhupada puts the chronology there. It's kind of interesting. I'll read a little bit of it, not to get so far off the track. At the present moment, we have just passed through 5,000 years of the Kali Yuga. That lasts 432,000 years. Before this, there was Dwarpa Yuga, which is 800,000 years. And before that, there was Treta Yuga, 1,200,000 years. Thus, some 2,005,000 years ago, Manu spoke the Bhagavad Gita to his disciple and son, Maharaj Isvaku, the king of this planet Earth. The age of the current Manu is calculated to last some 305,300,000 years, of which 120,400,000 have passed. As you can see, the Vedas give us a chronology that's... And Manu, imagine Manu, how old this one individual is who has this position of the of the father of mankind that he's here we're having we're getting information to the fact that the age of the current manu is calculated to last 305 million years it's a long lifespan of which 120 million have passed to put that in perspective i'm about to turn 61 i won't make it to 100 not many of us do Maybe I will, but that would be exceptional, wouldn't it? That's our lifespan. And here's Manu, who's living millions of years compared to our lifetime. And it's an interesting thing, I'll tell you, that I just read in the Bhagavad. And Prabhupada was talking about Brahma. The Brahma is the creator of the universe. And he lasts for the whole duration of the universe. In one, He's there in charge of the universe for the whole time. He lives to be very old in our calculation. In his calculation, it's only 100 years. But I won't get into all that right now. We've touched upon it in the past. We'll touch upon it again. 
Prabhupada says you can gauge intelligence by lifespan. By lifespan. So, if we live a paltry hundred years and we have some intelligence, how much intelligence does Manu have compared to ours? How much intelligence does Brahma have? It's an interesting, uh, interesting comparison. Back to the analogy. What's Krishna talking about here? He's talking about the fact that I give transcendental knowledge, pure transcendental knowledge, and it's passed down in pure disciplic succession from teacher to student, teacher to student, teacher to student. It's coming down like that. The verse we chanted, Evam param para praptam imam rajarsiyovidu sakale nehamata yoganasta parantara. This supreme science was thus received through the chain of disciplic succession, and the saintly kings understood it in this way. But in the course of time, the succession was broken, and therefore the science as it is appears to be lost. What does that mean, the succession was broken? The succession is broken. We can understand it in this way. The knowledge that Lord Jesus Christ gave his disciples, he was, a, we accept Jesus as a pure devotee. Whether we accept him as God or the Son of God, we accept him as, as having his stuff together when it comes to spiritual understanding. He has the, he has the proper conception of, of spiritual life. So he had his direct disciples. But now, 2,000 years later, I want to know what really did Jesus Christ mean when he said this or that. Where do I go for that knowledge? The Pentecostal church? To the Catholic church? No, let's go to the Protestants. No, the Baptists have it. No, no, it's a seven-day Adventist. No, they don't have it. Where do I go? How do I know where that knowledge has been delivered purely? I don't know. I have a hard time figuring it out. Maybe none of them. Maybe in 2,000 years, all of them have introduced some personal motivation in their interpretation and muddied the waters of clear understanding of spiritual knowledge that he provided. Here in the beginning of the fourth chapter of Bhagavad Gita, we're going to learn a very, the very, a very important concept that makes the knowledge presented through disciplic succession significant today. What do I mean by that? I have a hard time making the knowledge that Lord Jesus Christ gave significant in my life because I can't find a pure source. I can go to so many places, but I, it's not there. You ask earlier a very significant question in this regard. How did you select Bhaktivedanta Swami as your guru? And I said, it just causes mercy. But the significance is there in that 
as I matured spiritually, I learned discrimination from my study of Bhagavad Gita and Srimad Bhagavatam by hearing from the lips of my spiritual master. He taught me how to discriminate and choose who's a qualified spiritual master. And he didn't just give me his opinion. He backed up everything he taught me by scriptural reverence. We have in the practice of our spiritual life to become expert in the art of discrimination. And in Krishna consciousness, we're taught this art of discrimination. And we're taught how to, how to perceive the qualification of guru. I don't think any of us with our background have difficulty accepting Jesus Christ as a bona fide guru. What we have difficulty in today is finding a teacher who can convey to our heart the way Jesus conveyed to the heart of his disciples transcendental knowledge, spiritual knowledge, knowledge that's not tinged by some motivation. Parampara, the system of disciplic succession from teacher to student who becomes teacher to student who becomes teacher, that's the key to receiving spiritual knowledge. But there's a very unique characteristic required, isn't there? The student has to come up to the platform of purity of purpose of the teacher in order to convey the knowledge. If you want to tell me, if you are one of Lord Jesus' personal disciples, I don't know how many were there. Twelve, those, okay. So if you go to those primary disciples, some of them came up to the standard and some of them didn't. And then their disciples, some of them came up and some of them didn't. As time went on, what happened? Just what Krishna is talking about here. It's lost. It's lost. Over the course of time, the succession was broken. What breaks the succession? A teacher that doesn't come up to the standard? What disqualifies him from coming up to the standard? He doesn't purify himself by following the directions of his teacher. So he lets his personal self-motivated material desires stand in the way of not only his spiritual progress, his individual spiritual progress, but his ability to convey transcendental knowledge to his disciple. In the practice of Krishna consciousness, pure spiritual life, the teacher has to be qualified. And there is a way for us to learn the discrimination necessary. When we're young, as we read tonight at the beginning, 
We may not have the discriminatory power. It may not be there. But that doesn't mean that we stay dumbfounded our whole spiritual life. We learn what the qualifications are. And they're, they're, they're so unique. And in Krishna consciousness, we don't accept just what the guru says. And we do. And I'll explain what that means. We don't just accept the guru. We accept him because he's qualified in what he knowledge he gives. And what's his qualifications? Sadhu and Shastra. Three things. Guru, Sadhu, Shastra. These three things have to be in harmony before we accept. If, we have, if our guru does not agree with the prior acharyas and teachers, the prior sadhus, sadhu means somebody that knows what's going on, a saint. If his teachings don't agree with the teachings of the prior saints, that gives us pause. Wait, whoa. All the prior saints are saying this is the way to advance in spiritual life and you're saying, no, you don't have to do that. Just give me money. Oh, I don't, that's an, uh, wait, Jesus didn't want money and Jesus' disciples didn't want money and all of a sudden, when I come to your church or your ashram or your mosque or your synagogue, all of a sudden, it's all about money and without money, there's no spiritual knowledge given. Something's not right here. What about all those sadhus? Gives me pause, doesn't it? I say, wait. Maybe this isn't right. And what else do we have? We have Shastra. We have this knowledge coming in Bhagavad Gita, Srimad Bhagavatam, in the Vedas, in all these great spiritual literatures. There are codes of spirituality, both in how we conduct our affairs and our life and also in, in what is spiritual life and how did the creation come about and how did we come about and what is karma and what is reincarnation and on and on. So much knowledge is there. If all of a sudden we come and we sit at the feet of our guru and we start hearing... And he's saying something that, wait a minute, you're saying that we can fall down from Krishna once we get to Krishna? And Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that having once gone, they never return? Gives me pause. Wait, what you're saying does not correlate with Scripture? It does not correlate with past gurus, past sadhus. It gives me pause. Guru, sadhu, and sastra, you will find in the disciplic succession these things. You will also find guru will be fully qualified. And what's he qualified? He's qualified according to the direction of shastra. Vacha vegam manasa krodo vegam jiva vegam udaropasta vegam. He can control himself. This world doesn't control him the way it controls me. 
Vacho. He controls his speech. He only speaks spiritual knowledge. Manasakrodo. He doesn't let his mind carry him, him, carry him off to do some ridiculous activity that's in opposition to pro progress in spiritual life. You're not going to find a sadhu in the bar. Sorry. The brothel. Not going to be there. Vacho vegam. He doesn't get angry. But we have to learn that what that discrimination is. You might find the guru giving you a stern word. Don't do like this, you fool. But that's not anger. It may appear to be to us to be angry. He's angry because, come on, I want you to purify yourself. I want what's best for you. Just like the father, he may take out the stick once in a while and say, come on, will you quit stealing from the local grocer? I can't have that. You're not going to progress nicely in life if you do that. Vacha vegam, manasa krota vegam. And also he has control of his senses. He has control of his tongue, his belly, his genital. He's not interested in, in that animalistic pleasure. Doesn't mean he may not be a household man. He may he may have, be a married man. He may have children, but it's not that that he is a living saint. Everything he's doing, he's doing for the pleasure of Krishna. Yat karoshi narashnosi yashyahosi dadasiyat. Krishna points that out in Bhagavad Gita. All that you do, all that you eat, all that you offer and give away has to be done as an offering to me. All these things are there. So there's a test. Not only does he talk the talk, he walks the walk. Otherwise, he's not our guru. We're not interested in somebody that can just simply talk sweet words, but then he goes out and you see him you know, doing some nonsense activity. Yes? And I heard another thing too was that uh, there's no difference between his private life and his public life. Yes. Good point. He has no private life. It's no closed doors. We can see what Lord Krishna is conveying here. We can get some understanding. How spiritual knowledge over time can be lost. But we also need to understand how it can be preserved. If it can be lost, it can be preserved. As spiritual seekers, we need to know both, don't we? We need to know how it's lost. Well, we have a good example in our own culture. And our culture isn't different from other cultures. We can see now there's a class of, of Muslims. And their understanding of their teaching is certainly in opposition to the majority of the understanding. But there are a group, and they say, well, our understanding is you've got to kill all the, what do they call us? Infidels. Infidels. What do we call them? Heathens? Yeah. What do the Jewish call them? Uh, anyway, they, we all have those, we all have a nomenclature we use for people that don't accept God. Don't we? Every religion has that. We also say, yes, you have to kill the demons. But how do you kill the demons? Well, in this age, there's no way to kill them all. You've got to kill demoniac mentality. How do you kill demoniac mentality? With knowledge. 
So we have our tools of killing. Our tools of killing demoniac mentality start with the tongue. Krishna Prashadam. They also start with the tongue. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. We go in the streets, people will hear, hear this chanting. Demoniac mentality can't stand it. Oh, run to the opposite side of the street. But it's like medicine. It may be bitter, but if you're exposed to it, it will have, a, it will have an effect. It will, it, will, it will purify you. That very ancient science of the relationship with the Supreme is told today by me to you because you are my devotee as well as my friend and can therefore understand the transcendental mystery of this science. So next week we will dive into this verse. This is so very important. Spiritual life is more about relationships than it is about rules and regulations. Rules and regulations are there to purify us. We have to quit, we have to quit those activities which are going to be in direct opposition to our best interest. Does that make sense? It's not a big deal. It's not that the, when we look at religion and they say, thou shalt not kill, it's like something, well, what do you mean, man? I like to kill. I mean, yeah, you want to kill and then you got to get the karma and you're going to have to die because you killed that person and he can come back to kill you and then it just goes on. Do you really want that? It's not in your best interest. Spiritual life is more about relationships than it is about rules and regulations. If we can develop the proper relationship with Guru, with Krishna, with the devotees, and with the demons, proper relationship, run the other way. When somebody says, come on, let's go out and uh, you know, go to the bar, and you just say, no, that's okay. Thank you. When he comes day after day and say, it says that, you say, maybe if you didn't come around, probably be my best interest. I appreciate the fact that you enjoy that, but i got to be a little careful. I have a tendency to become crazy. I forget about God. I think I'm God. I forget about moral principles. I think all women are for my pleasure. Oh, wait. Is that in my best interest? But if we have the proper relationship with Guru, if we have the proper relationship with the Supreme Lord Himself, who's here with us all the time, He's not in some foreign land, He's not out there somewhere. He's here. He's in these books. We may not have the eyes to see yet. Atashri Krishna Namadi Nabavidgrahamindriya. We're not going to see God with these eyes or hear him with these ears. We have to spiritualize. And that spiritualization is very simple. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna. We chant. We chant, we become purified. And the unique characteristic of the Supreme Lord is as we give him a bit of our relationship, we start to cultivate that relationship. And that cultivation begins with the tongue, as I said. Sevan with the tongue. Atashri Krishna Namadi, Nabaved Graham Indriya, Sevan Mukhi, Jiva Dao. Jiva Dao means tongue. 
So we begin with the tongue, taking prasadam, chanting Hare Krishna, or chanting any name of God. We're not sectarian. Krishna, very attractive, though, very sweet. As we begin that, then, then we can actually perceive Krishna's presence. Relationships. How do we develop the proper relationship? That's the key to our spiritual progress. More than all the rules and regulations in the world, all the do's and don'ts, if we maintain a proper relationship with Guru, a submissive relationship, a proper relationship with Krishna, a proper relationship with with the devotees of the Lord, a proper relationship with those that aren't. If we do that, then spiritual life can come. If we just let this holy name enter into our heart, all the lust that all the religions of the world try to fight dissipates of its own accord. We don't have to, it's not, we don't have to make an extraneous effort. It will happen naturally. Any questions? Thank you so very much. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.